Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 734th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from Urban Farm U, and I'm here with Mr. Bill McDormand. Hello, Bill. Hello, Greg. Good to be here. Good to see you again. Right back at you. And tonight we are talking, and I don't know where this description came from, probably from Bell. And I know you have some stories about it, but it goes like this. Restricted by where you can plant your garden? How do you optimize difficult spaces to plant your favorite vegetables? We will help you navigate challenges with areas never targeted for beautiful eye-catching gardens. And I am just going to throw that over to you, Bell. Thanks. The idea for this one came from discussing some stories that I've heard, the things that have happened to me over the years that really greatly expanded my, the way I look at gardening. I think so many of us, and I know I started out the same way when I had my first garden in Missoula, Montana, when I was in college, Mm -hmm. I picked an area out at the edge of the property. And I built a fence around it and it was square and flat. I made a gate and I, that was my garden. And I think most of us think about gardens that way. And, and as the years went by, I'm, I, I think I've come to realize that that's just kind of an, un, it's an unfair reflection of industrial agriculture in yeah. a way. That's how we farm big, right? We have big squares on the outsides of our cities. And so we, we think that to be real, we're going to mimic that somehow. And it was much later that I started realizing that most of the food I was growing in and around my, my house was actually not out there in the garden. It was hidden in nooks and crannies and different kinds of places around, around my house. And I was taking advantage of the, the east side. They didn't get the hot sun for my lettuces and my greens. And I was starting to really pay attention to niche ecosystems and the different kinds of things, especially herbs that could grow in those. So that's the overall inspiration for tonight is hopefully to answer some questions and maybe get some stories from you guys about, about things that you've discovered along those lines that are surprising that could help us. And so I wanted to start off though with a story that was one of the most surprising things that happened to me when I owned Seeds Trust High Altitude Gardens, my seed company. Mm-hmm. As many of you and I've told stories about going to Siberia during that period and bringing back Siberian tomatoes and because they tasted better and they were short season and cold tolerant. And after three or four years, after I got back and I was selling the seeds and they were going back out all over the world, I got a call from a guy who literally, when I answered the phone, he goes, I did it. And I said, well, good. What did you do? And he goes, no, you don't understand. I did it. I saved my own tomato seeds. I grew my own tomatoes and I saved my own tomato seeds. And I go, great. That's what you're supposed to do. And he goes, no, you don't understand. They were Siberian tomatoes. And I go, I know I sell Siberian tomatoes. And he goes, no, you don't get it. And I go, well, tell me what's going on. And he said, I am an executive, an insurance executive, and I work in the Transamerica building in San Francisco, the pyramid-shaped building that defines the San Francisco line when you look at the city. 
And I go, yeah. And he says, well, I'm way high up in that building. And I had my window modified so I could open it. I'm the only one that had it. It was a special request. And wow. I could open my window and I had a rack built so that I could put two pots outside my window on the Transamerica building. And he said, and I planted Siberian tomatoes because as everyone knows, San Francisco in the summer is the, what, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco, right? Yep. Right, so he, that's what he did. It took him a while, but he finally got tomatoes to come up and he finally got them to produce and he finally saved seeds from his tomato plants on the side of the Transamerica building. And he goes, yes, guess what I'm doing now? I am selecting seeds for the Transamerica building that will grow <laughs> best in this Transamerica building by saving my own seed. And so to me, that was the pinnacle of creative thinking to grow food in your garden in the weirdest place that you could ever think of. It. So yeah. I'm hoping somebody else has some other stories too. I think that was the most far out one that I've heard. Well, and I, yeah. I think my urban farm in Phoenix and the farm that I'm working on here also can reflect here because my garden wasn't a space place garden. I didn't have a four by four, although I had garden beds out front, I didn't have a specific place to garden. My whole quarter acre plus the neighboring spaces around me were my place to garden. In fact, not 15 minutes ago, I got some pictures from Jenny from down the street in Phoenix and there are pictures of her apricot tree that I planted in her front yard about a decade ago. And so I think what we're trying to do here is bust out of the, out of the paradigm that our garden has to be in a specific in your yard, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I met a guy in Nevada one time that was growing watermelons on his fence and using diapers. Once the melons would form, they would get too heavy and drag down yep. on the thing. So he learned to tie diapers up and around the whole. So he had, it was a fence with melons and diapers on it. And I thought, there's another, like, who would have, where did that idea come from? He must have gone through a period where he was raising children. He was living by himself by then. But I love this idea of breaking out and growing food every week because yeah. that's especially what we're going to have to do in urban areas. Right. I wrote a, I wrote a book a few yeah, years ago a called Grow Wherever You Go. And I asked for stories. This is about 10, 12 years ago. It's a little mini book that I, that I wrote. And I asked for stories from people mm -hmm on where they were growing food. And the first story I want to reflect on was a guy in Honolulu, Hawaii, somewhere in Hawaii, on a, in a tower who turned his back patio into an aquaponics space. So aquaponics, for those of you that don't know, aquaponics is you're raising fish in a pond and you take the poopy fish water and you circulate it up through the plants hydroponically and the plants right. clean the water and the fish poop 
fertilizes the plants so that you get this natural system growing. And so that was where he chose to grow on his patio. I'm pretty sure it was in Honolulu. But the better story was in... 1975 in Phoenix, I started my first business and I used to clean, service, and build fish ponds in Phoenix. And I did a lot of work with aquaculture ponds for people. So I would build fish ponds for people so they could grow fish to eat. And I had this one guy, this was probably 1979, I was 19 years old. And I had this guy, he hired me to help him convert his swimming pool and his jacuzzi into a aquaculture pond. And I went and did, right? I did the, I went and did the project and I was done with it and I left. And so fast forward, so this is like 1979, fast forward to 2009, 30 years later, I am throwing out to my communities Hey, I want your stories of curious projects that you've done that are different around raising food. And I get this email from a Robert Gilsdorf. And he said, in the late 70s, I converted my swimming pool into a fish pond. And then for years after that, I would, on a Saturday, we would, in the fall, we would harvest the fish and I would do a fish fry on Sunday. And it turned out it was the guy that I built the fish pond for. Breaking out of the normal places to grow food is really important. Think about how many swimming pools there are in Phoenix. (laughs) Right. You know, what the potential to grow fish. Mm -hmm. That may end up being the only places people get their fish. (laughs) Well, and here's the thing about that. I don't eat fish anymore. Because mm-hmm. fish is so highly polluted. Yeah. There's heavy metals in fish from the ocean. And this isn't across the board, but right. I don't want to take that chance because there's there's so much pollution right. out there and fish are on the front line of being able to uptake that stuff. And so if we're eating that, then right. we're taking in those heavy metals and those pollutants and that kind of stuff. So this is one of the big reasons I am a big proponent of growing your own food. Well, yeah. So you know where it comes from and what's in yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. That's one, of the, that's one of the reasons I'm sitting right now on the Sea of Cortez, because the upper end of the Sea of Cortez is one of the least polluted ocean mm. places. Mm-hmm. And it, it wouldn't normally be that way because the Colorado River, which drains so much agricultural area, there's a big dead spot at yeah. the mouth of the Mississippi where all that pollution comes in. Well, the Colorado dried up. Yep. It doesn't make it. So we missed all that pollution through really important period. And so the fish up here are so far away from the other parts of the ocean that at least we like to believe and there's evidence that they have less pollution. it's still a a biosphere that's permeable but yeah right huh that's incredible when i was in college greg i was a carpenter's apprentice oh really that's how i got through college and several of my my boss says apartments he owned several apartments that way he bought them cheap 
fix them up and would rent them. And so I had to go over one day and check out because he had some tenants moving out and we were just going to get the apartment ready for somebody else. And I walk in and there's a rice paddy, literally. They had stapled plastic in the living room of this apartment in Missoula, Montana, the whole living room, which had glass on the, I'll give them that on the south and western sides. Mm-hmm. And they had stapled plastic about 18 inches up off the floor and built this, what they thought was a waterproof sort of thing. And they had, they were growing rice in the front. They were Vietnamese. Wow. Laotian actually, refugee, part of the Hmong tribe that had during, that had immigrated during the Vietnam War. And I thought, well, that's, that is beyond my kind of thinking about gardening for sure, because they realized quickly they couldn't grow the rice that they wanted outdoors in, yeah. in Montana. So they needed protection. So they just moved it into the living room. And I thought, wow, there you go. Most of us aren't ready to give up our living rooms yet. Right. Well, let's talk about that because you sent me a package this week, different rice varieties that I'm going to plant. And now I always thought that rice was grown in patties in water. And the stuff you're sending me isn't that, is it? No, no, no. It's what they call upland rice. Mm -hmm. So it's rice that's been selected out to grow in a regular garden with regular sorts of irrigation, different amounts. Some are more drought tolerant than others, but it's the rice that Thomas Jefferson smuggled that really helped build the first agriculture in the United States. Ah, It was upland rice that was being grown in the Southeast, especially and moved up into the North. And so, yeah, I sent you about 80 varieties. They're all mixed together on purpose. So you won't know which varieties they are. Uh-huh. But your job isn't to find out what the variety name is, but to find out which one works best for you. And that's once you figure that out after a couple of years of saving seeds from the plants that work best, then we can send it to a university and figure out what the name is. But that way you don't have to do a lot of work to sift through 80 different rices to find the one that might work for you. Great. So what I'm going to do with that then is just randomly plant the seed. And whatever's going to grow is going to grow. And the stuff that grows really well, those are the ones I want to save the seeds from and plant them again, right? The ones that jump up and shout at you and go, hallelujah, Greg, we are happy to be here. All right. (laughs) Yeah, those are the ones you save. And it doesn't, when someone asks my teacher for doing this, Joseph Lofthouse, what kind of records, he always gives the same answer. None. Get down out of this being a burden, right? This is fun. We're just trying to find allies and friends, things that really want to grow for us where we are. That's the most important work we can be doing. And so, yeah, you're doing it. And so, but you've got a bed that you prepared, isn't it? Like, where are you doing this? I haven't got a bed I've prepared. I have, so I have four acres here in Asheville and the place that I'm going to be planting some grains and some rice is 2,000 square feet. It's a flat plateau down the hill from my house. I wasn't even going to till it. I was just going to plant seeds and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so the, there's um, the advantage in doing that is that if you don't 
bait BS, you'll find the varieties that are aggressive enough that don't need babying. Ah, very right? good. All the work, you can think about that in your garden overall. The more work you do to prepare, you get really great soil. You get a really great place to plant everything. All you're doing is allowing weak varieties a better mm. chance. Now, if you're going for yield, it may be that those weak varieties are weak in starting and they're weak in their root structure in the beginning and they would never make it in a harsh environment to begin with. They have to be babied. But after they get going, they'll produce the most. Right. And we've focused our whole agriculture on yield and color and size and taste and all these things. But what we've forgotten is will it actually just work? Especially if I'm absent minded. Right. Or that'd be me. Yeah. What if I'm physically getting old and I just don't have the energy mm -hmm. to take care of all those things anymore, but I still want the food? So that's for John Navazio, who's a breeder at Johnny Selected Seeds. I always comes to mind. He always says, go hard on them, Bill. Go hard on them. <laughs> when you're doing this kind of selection work, just create the hardest and harshest conditions you can. You might want to plant them earlier, some of them, Greg, before it's your frosts are gone, to see if yep. some of them make it through that. And then dry them out at one point. See which ones make it through a dry period. I don't know. Well, I'm not going to water. You're looking for one thing so that, yeah, well, good. So all you have to do is like what you want is the thing you can throw out there or actually even better will reseed itself, right? Yeah. Year after year without you being much involved and you'll still get rice to eat. Wow. What a great rice thing. Or, rice or grains. It's, it happened to me last year. The grasses that they're using to hold up the berms along the roadways here make grain heads and and the whole thing and they come back year after year and that's when i got last year and you guys have if you've been around for a while you've heard me say this but grains are grasses grasses just grow wild yeah so yeah they're amazing they're, they're so important to succession and grains if you're growing a garden and you want to add grains. This is the grain portion of the program, I guess, again. But they're just so good for your soil as yeah. a cover crop to cover things. Yeah. Grow them in rotation. Find a way to incorporate them back into your gardens. And I think you'll find that not only are, does your garden work better, but you'll be healthier and it'll be, your mind will be blown by just yeah. all the color shapes and sizes of them. Yeah, yeah it's good. We got a couple of things um, here. Donna says, yeah. I'm growing a tomato, pepper, and broccoli in pots in my backyard. Yay. That's awesome. The property is a rental in a mobile home community. I did plant a lemon tree a couple of years ago, and it's producing lots of lemons. Go, Donna, go. All right. There you go. That's awesome. Laura wants to know, are termites in the soil here in Arizona? Well, termites in the soil here in, in North Carolina as well. Are they a problem for plants? Will they eat the roots? I have an answer for that. What's yours, Bill? I've never experienced that. Right. I've never experienced the termites being a problem. My gophers are. Gophers <laughs> but, are. Yeah. 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 Termite, termites eat dead wood. And it has to be sufficiently uh, wet. So very, very dry wood, the termites aren't interested in, but it has to be dead. So no, termites are not a problem 
for the plants. Lemonade says, I have raised beds and large pots. Awesome. It also wants to know, are plastic baggies okay to store their seeds in? As long as the seeds are dry when you put them in there. Yeah. So don't bag up your seeds on a rainy day. There should be a, a country Western song about that. <laughs> don't forget to wash your truck and don't bag up your seeds on a rainy day. <laughs> Jewel, Jewel wants to know, can she plant grains in March in Arizona and Phoenix? I would try planting grains every month yep. of the year at this point. I would get as many different kinds as you can, and I would plant every month. And that comes out of some experience at Native. When I was at Native Seed Search, we were told that November we had a crop of white Sonora wheat, which was one of the hundred years it's been grown there. And and we harvested, I think, the next April or May. And I said, so when's the best time to plant? And nobody could tell me. So we planted in December. We planted in January. We planted in February. We planted in March. We still got good crops. So that was through a winter period. But there are a lot of grains, and we're going to have to learn how to grow in the heat. And that's one of the reasons I'm down here in Mexico is to set up a project. So that we're, I, I'm trying to find out the most heat tolerant of all the grains that will grow when it gets to the end of the 90s through the hot summer, if ah, that's what it takes, because I right. figure about half the planet is gonna be that way soon. Yeah, and then- And you do that, I don't do that by building up my soil and making sure it's perfect and planting at the perfect time. I do that by going hard on them and seeing what actually works in the hard conditions. Let the plants adapt and teach me because I, the longer I do this, the more I really believe that they, we have yet to discover as, as successful as we've been with our agriculture in creating all this abundance in food. One thing that we haven't been paying attention to is just how to optimize growth with the least amount of inputs and work. And that's, that's the adventure I'm on now. And that can happen in any corner of your yard, in the worst of soils. And so that's where you just need to be more playful and be more willing to fail. Yeah. Because, it, you know, if 99 times it fails, but that one time it works, you've got the one grain or the one plant that worked in the one place. Right. There you go. Yeah. Save the seeds. Lemonade wants to know how large of an area do I need to grow grains? One pot with one seed is all you, is the minimum. If you get, I can send her one little packet of einkorn seeds. Einkorn's the oldest in the first grain. They call it ein means one in German. Mm. And you put one seed in a pot and you can get um, hundreds of seeds from that right? one. Yeah. Then you can start looking around that take the whole year then to look around and maybe form a partnership with your neighbors or friends or community garden or something else. If you want to expand your thing, but get started and then send some seeds back to us. That's how our heritage grain Alliance works is that we send seeds to people. We've got about 200 different kinds of things, 200, 300. And then if, and when you can, you send us back twice as much. And then we send those out to other people. And we've been doing this for six years now. Nice. And where do people find out information about this? Heritagegrains.org.
Cool. All right. Any final thoughts, Bill? Something you've been saying over the years, Greg, that pertains to gardening, I think really pertains here is that the most dense, packed, dead soil there is, is between our ears, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's where we really need to loosen the soil and compost and cultivate, so to speak. So I hope that everybody will just take a deep breath here and think about something you can grow that you've never grown before in a place that you never dreamed that was possible. And let's all expand. And maybe that's your neighbor's yard and you have to go over and form a relationship and ask them who knows what it is. Maybe it's a city building downtown, but let's all expand what we're doing as gardeners and spread this incredible sense of abundance and resilience that it gives us with the rest of the world. Because Lord, I think it needs it. I Just the little bit of news that trickles down here to me, he stick, stuck a stick in the big amp pile and there's a yeah. lot of anxiety going on out there. Well, and, and, and so uh, maybe, maybe that'll be the function of our gardens, right? Calming us down. Yeah. Well, and I just saw a video this morning on the massive amount of rains that they're having in California right now. Uh, both yeah. Tom Spellman and Scott Murray, my two mentors that live in Southern California, said oh, yeah. they've both gotten double the amount of rain that they normally get in a year, and we're two and a half months into the year. Wow. And the video that I saw online was talking about the challenges farmers are going to have this season growing the summer yeah. food. And so be thinking about how you're going to grow your own food. Yeah, this is the part of our plan. I don't know why it is, but you and I have seen this for a long time, that this is inevitable. That yeah. That's what's been coming. And we live in that world and we speak that way. And I hope we're wrong. But what's great is it's win-win. When you're growing if your you own learn food? how to grow some of your own food, yeah. Yep. And the world never changes. You're growing your own food and it tastes better. You know, what's wrong with that? So, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Dennis from Rocky Point. Love it. He says, I'm doing that every day and down here in Rocky Point. Well, I'll wave to you. I'm crossed in San Felipe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah let me know if you have any varieties that work really well, Dennis. How many what that work really well? <laughs> Look at varieties, seeds, things that wow. are adapted to that climate. Very good. Because that's basically the same climate. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody for showing up. Thank right. you, Bill. Appreciate your time. Yeah. And, uh, thank we'll... you, Greg. This has been great. Yeah, you bet. Thank Always. You. Love thank you, everybody, for showing up. Yep. So we will all see right. you all next month. All right. Take Bye. care. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.